And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. Today, we're going to do a couple things. First off, I'm going to give some free consulting advice to politicians that are currently running around the country, not just here locally in Tennessee, but around the country. We, I, I've had more conversations as of late with, uh, with, with advocates that are working in our state, with advocates that are working uh, in, in different parts of the country, with national pro-life organizations, having conversations with them about some comments and, and some concerns I have of quote-unquote pro-life candidates that are uh, seems they they seem to be getting a little squeamish when it comes to standing strong on their pro life convictions. And so what I'm going to do today to start off with is we're going to give some free consulting advice, and I'm going to give and use an example out of Arizona to do that. Then we're going to look at there's a there's a great piece over at Commonwealth uh, Magazine, and. And the reason I want to look at that is because they have a, a great piece about making pregnancy safer. And, and what they're talking about is the, the way to make pregnancy safer is not to provide more abortions, which is what the abortion industry would say is we need to, you know, we have a, a high maternal uh, fatality rate in this country. And, and we need to, the only way to make it safer is to be able to give more abortions. And, and this piece does a great job of breaking down and, and saying why that uh, why that's just ridiculous and, and nonsense. And so we'll look at that here in a little while, and, and then we'll get into some other things as time permits. But right now, again, I want to look at what's happening around the political landscape when it comes to the pro-life issue. So, so allow me to give you some context. We fought for 50 years, roughly, to see Roe overturned, and to see that abortion would would go back to the states, and then the states would decide what they want to do with the issue of abortion and life. Now, now we fought for that. We prayed for that. We advocated for that. We, we built and opened up pregnancy centers. We, we built pro-life organizations around that, political uh, packs around that. We, we, we created whole systems around this issue. We have the right to life. We have live action with Lila Rose. We have students for life. We have Susan B. Anthony. We, we have all of these organizations that are working, that have been working toward a day that, that Roe would be overturned. We have the March for Life in D.C., half a million people coming together, marching in January, saying that life has value, doing that year after year after year after year. We have politicians that will create pretty flyers and mail them to you. They'll create pretty emails and send them to you. They'll knock on your door and they'll ask you to vote for them because they stand with you on the issue of life and they want to see Roe overturned. And then June 24th, 2022 happens and Roe is overturned. And now... What are we finding? We're finding local politicians, national politicians, 
Senate, House, men, women, that, that, are, that are going, well, I mean, I, I don't know how to talk about this issue. You know, I've just always been talking about it because I never thought the day would come. I never thought Roe would be overturned, so it was easy. You see, it was easy to fight on the defense. It was easy to say, we want it overturned. It's much harder now to, to say it's overturned. What are we going to do? Much harder. And so what, what, what it seems to be, and what I've been saying in all my conversations with some of these um, political groups that are working to get people elected, is it seems to be that, that folks didn't really want to see Roe overturned. And, and I know I've given this illustration over and over and over on this show, but the reality is these Many of these politicians, elected leaders, just wanted to keep chasing the car. They didn't want to catch it. The last thing they wanted to do was catch it. They wanted to chase it because as we're chasing it, we can raise money. As we chase it, we can get people to the polls. As we chase it, I don't really have to defend my position that life begins at conception. I don't have to defend it because... It doesn't matter. Roe is the law of the land. Well, you take that away, and now what? Now what? Well, I'm going to give you an example. In Arizona, in Arizona, Blake Masters is running for the Senate. It's a swing state. It's an important state. It's an important seat. Blake Masters has been very vocal. He has created a quite the machinery, the political machinery. He's been on all the major shows. He's all over Twitter. He's getting a lot of focus from national media because he's bold in his stances. He's been, during the primary, during the primary, he's, hey, I'm for personhood. His website says it. His website says, I am fully pro-life, no exceptions, and I believe in personhood, meaning life begins at conception. Blake Masters wins the primary, the Republican primary, running away. It wasn't even close. So now he's in the general election against Kelly, who is uh, a liberal, who is pro-abortion, who, who has done nothing in terms of protecting the border of Arizona from uh, folks crossing it, who's done nothing about inflation, who's voted the wrong way on a number of issues. And what does Blake Masters do? He goes to his website. And he scrubs the personhood language. He scrubs the conception language. And so now it appears as if, now he would say his position hasn't changed, but it appears that his position has changed. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because this is, this is the issue. So if, if I would put on my consulting hat, which nobody's paying me for, for that, But if I were to put on my consulting hat, I would say you, you won the primary because you were bold in your stances. And now you're acting as if Roe wasn't overturned. So what he has done is pivoted to a position that is achievable. So that's been the line as of late. Well, you got it. And I've seen it all over Twitter. I've seen, you know, people that are that are wanting to support him and wanting him to win. And and if, you know, any pro-lifer that steps up and says, hey, what are you doing? 
You know, we're, we're being told, well, you just clearly don't want him to win. And he's in a purple state. He's in a swing state. He's going to have to pivot. He's going to have to shift. No, no, he doesn't. Because here's the reality. When you try to shift who you are to gain some kind of favor from, an, uh, from, from a certain demographic, the reality is that demographic that you think you are pulling over to your side, they ain't coming. How do I know that? Ask Mitt Romney. You, you see, we, we have this tendency to go, well, I, I need more people to like me. I need more people to, to come to my side. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to water down the issues that my base brought in front of me. And so that's what Masters is doing. But it's not just Masters in Arizona. We, we've seen it with folks in New York. We've seen it with folks in other purple states and blue states. And frankly, we've seen it with folks in red states. Because they're terrified. They're believing that, oh, the Dobbs case has really ruined it for the pro-lifers in the midterms. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. You, you, can, you can stay strong in your pro-life convictions while also reaching a larger demographic. Now, how do you do that? You say things like, I am 100% pro-life, no exceptions. I believe life begins at conception. I believe that abortion ends the life of a unique individual, a unique human being that has intrinsic value. I believe that. But I also understand that, that not everyone, I understand that not everyone believes what I believe. But, but, but if I'm, if I'm running for office, here's my message to the voter is, but, but listen to me, voter. I also understand you don't believe what the abortion industry believes. I also understand that you don't believe that abortion should be allowed up to nine months of pregnancy. I also believe that you don't want your tax dollars paying for abortions. I believe that you don't want Medicare and, and these other things paying for abortions. I believe that you don't want states paying for abortions. So I'll admit that, that my life begins at conception might make you feel a little uncomfortable, but, but here's the reality. I am erring on the side of life. And I'm never going to apologize for erring on the side of life. If erring on the side of life is extreme, then call me extreme. But again, if I'm doing the messaging for some of these candidates, my response would be, but if you want to know what, what real extreme is, real extreme is believing that we can, we can take a baby piece by piece apart in the womb all the way up to nine months. That's extreme. And that's the position of the abortion industry. That's the position of pretty much every left-leaning politician in this country. That's where they stand. That's where the current administration stands. That's where the Speaker of the House stands. So if you want to call me extreme because I err on the side of life, then so be it. But let's, let's be honest with each other on what's extreme and what's not extreme. If, if our leaders, if our politicians, those candidates that are running would say things like that, you know what would happen? their opponents would stop bringing the issue of abortion up. Because here's the thing. When, when you look at polls, 
The abortion issue isn't even in the top five. For some, it's not even in the top ten of issues. They're concerned about inflation and wars and the border and jobs and, and salaries and, and all these other things. So there's a reason why these opponents are bringing up the abortion issue and trying to paint pro-lifers as extreme because they don't want to talk about inflation. They don't want to talk about taxes. They don't want to talk about student loan forgiveness. They want to focus on these other things. And when these pro-life candidates are unwilling to articulate their position, then they're being backed into a corner. And so in, in, in scrubbing the website that, that Blake Masters did in Arizona, ultimately what he did was he upset his base. And the people that he thinks he's going to bring over to his side aren't coming so, so in reality, he just upset everybody and won nobody, except maybe a handful. We got to do better. We got to do better. We, we must articulate this position. Because we're acting as if Roe wasn't overturned. And it makes no sense to me. And so over the past, I'll just be transparent with you. Over the past week... Over the past 10 days, I have been in contact and, and messaging and phone calls with folks that are connected to these areas to say we must do better. We got to hold these elected officials accountable. We got to have the conversations that are going to be uncomfortable. We can't get squishy on the issue of life. We can't. And again, we're erring on the side of life. So even as they attack pregnancy centers, here's the thing, folks. No heartbeat has been extinguished inside of a pregnancy center. None. But they're the ones calling us extreme. We'll talk more about it when we come back. Boy, let that, let that soak in, in your bones right there. For you uh, non-Tennesseans listening to this, that's what's going to be played when we walk in the pearly gates. Right there. Yeah, right there it is. The angels of heaven are going to be playing that for eternity. I don't know where you'll find that in the Bible, but, but I just trust that will be... That will be the case. As we continue the conversation, look, look, we have, a, we have a moment here to do the hard thing. And, and, and I know that sometimes I sound like a broken record on this. I talked about this in the last show as well. Doing the right thing is the right thing no matter what, but it's not easy. And I get that. And, and, and what happened in Arizona was some consultant told Blake Masters, look, you got the primary out of the way. Now we got to shift a little bit to the middle. Your, your life and, and abortion message is a little extreme. It's going to make some people uncomfortable. So we got to shift it a little bit to the middle. Here's what should have happened. If I was consulting Masters, I would have said, you don't need to change anything. This is what got you here. You need to continue that. Don't touch the website. Keep the website the way it is. But as you're messaging and as you're going out to fish fries and to, to these events and having town halls and all that, 
what we need you to do is don't waver on your pro-life stance. But what we need you to do is start articulating that some of the things that we can get done in D.C. And what are some of the things that we can get done in D.C.? We can, we can, we can point to a poll out of Harvard that, that again, is not a pro-life poll. That says 73% of women agree with the Dobbs law out of Mississippi that says there should be a 15-week ban. We can point to that. We can tell the voters, hey, look, I believe that life begins at conception. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure life is protected and that I err on the side of life. But the, the bulk of the populace would even say that we need a 15-week ban. And I'm going to do whatever I can to get the incremental changes in Washington. You see, that's not watering down your pro-lifeness. That is speaking directly to the voter that, hey, I know you may not be ready to be and to say that you are pro-life with no exceptions. But let me tell you where the bulk of the populace is. And the bulk of the populace agrees with the Dobbs law out of Mississippi that says there should be a 15-week ban. The bulk of the populace agrees that tax dollars should not go to pay for abortion. And so as you're doing these town halls, as you're in these debates, you can look at your opponent that is saying, we need abortion on demand for whatever reason, and we need taxpayers to pay for it. You can say, this, my opponent is out of step with the bulk of the populace. My opponent is out of step with the people of Arizona. That's what he could say. He could say, my opponent's extreme position that abortion should be allowed all the way up to nine months is out of step with the people of Arizona, is out of step with the people of America. He could say that without wavering on his pro-lifeness. Because if you fully pivot to a whatever is achievable mindset, here's what happens. If we, if we walk that line, we don't get the heartbeat bill, we don't get the trigger law. We don't get the, the Texas law that banned abortion. We don't, we don't get any of these things. Because if the mindset is, well, what's achievable right now? Then we're not willing to, to be on the offense and move forward. We, we make this much more complicated than it needs to be. We're scared of what, what they may say about us. Well, what if they then bring up rape and incest? What, what will I say? Well, here's what you'll say. You'll say, those instances, although rare, break my heart. Those instances, although rare, should be fully prosecuted. Those instances, although rare, should concern all of us. But the voters of Arizona are sending me to the Senate to vote on policy that affects the American people. And the reality is when we make policy, we make policy based on the data that is available to us. And the data that is available to us tells us that the amount of abortions that happen because of rape and incest is around 1%. 1% for rape, 0.5% for incest. Now, I understand that there are some people hearing my voice right now that have, that have walked through that. They've been raped. They were a victim of incest. And so to them, the, the, these data points mean nothing because it affected them 100% of the time. I understand the heartbreak and the pain that comes with that. But when it comes to policy, 
These are the things that I'm going to want to do. If you articulate the message that way, unapologetically, while showing grace and mercy to those that, that, have, that have been victims of these terrible acts, you can stand firm in that. You can then ask your opponent, well, you know, you, you bring up rape and incest. What about your position that, that a woman decides to abort a baby at eight months? A healthy baby, healthy mom. How do you defend that? Make them defend it. Make them defend it. But you see, we, we get concerned because we, we struggle to articulate our own position, so we don't even know how to make them defend their position. Make them defend it. In front of the cameras, on the microphone, on the campaign trail, make them defend it. Because if the, if the poll numbers are correct, and 73% of women and around 73% of men believe there should be a 15-week ban, if you have a candidate that is calling for abortion all the way up to nine months, and they start defending that position, and then they start walking through, well, well if you're defending it at, at eight months, how, how does an abortion occur at eight months? And then they're going to say, well, well late-term abortions are very rare. So how come they can say that late-term abortions are very rare and we're just supposed to accept it, but when we say rape and incest for abortion is very rare, we're told that we're heartless bigots and we don't, we don't love women. You see what I'm doing there? You, you see how, how we're letting them control the narrative. We just, the pro-life movement just won the biggest victory in 50 years. And we're acting as if we, we moved nothing. We're acting as if we did nothing. So yeah, it, it's not easy. And yeah, these topics are difficult. And yeah, when you're at a town hall, there's a really good chance somebody in that crowd is post-aborted. But again, you're, you're being elected to do the hard thing. You put your name in the hat. If you didn't put your name in the hat, then go and, and enjoy yourself. But you put your name in the hat. You're asking us to vote for you. You're asking us to stump for you. You're asking us to tell people to go out and vote for you. And so if we're going to do that, then, then we need you to hold up your end of the bargain and do the hard thing. Our position is not extreme. If you're called an extremist, what, what comes to mind when someone says they're an extremist? It's all negative stuff, right? Extremists do terrible things. Extremists firebomb places. Extremists fly planes into the tw Twin Towers. Extremists put on suicide vests and walk into a subway and blow themselves up. That's what extremists do. At no time in history have we, have we said that extremists want more life to occur. Oh, you're so extreme, you want more heartbeats out there. You want more babies. Man, you're extreme, you're crazy. Extremists have never erred on the side of life. 
So when they call me an extremist for my position on life, no. I'm simply doing the primary thing. I'm saying that life has value and we should celebrate that. That's not being extreme. Yet here we are. So are we prepared to have the hard conversations, to say the right thing no matter what? I sure hope so. We'll be back. Look, I could, I could go on for hours about what, uh, what, what our political leaders need to say when it comes to this issue. There's nothing that gets me more frustrated. Than, than seeing so-called pro-lifers struggle to articulate our position when the camera's in their face or when they're at a town hall, when they're at a debate. And they, when, when people bring up some of the harder topics, we, we tend to stumble over ourselves and try to change the subject and pivot and change our website. And look, we need to, we need to stay strong and have courage and, and just state the facts. And you can do that without being a jerk. You can do that without sounding arrogant. You can do that while representing your constituency. You can. And, and we need you to. We need you to. Now I want to I shift a little bit and look at this piece that's talking about uh, pregnancy. You know, the, 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 the abortion movement would say that Abortion is safer than having a baby. And so their, their answer to everything is always more abortions. And so here's this piece says this. In the weeks since the Supreme Court's momentous ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson, much of the news court coverage is focused on the relative safety of abortion versus pregnancy. A New Yorker article announced that pregnancy is more than 30 times more dangerous than abortion. Now, now granted, they're not taking into account that in every abortion, a successful abortion, a heartbeat is ended. So a baby is is... Uh, life is ended in every successful abortion, but yet they're saying it's safer than, than pregnancy. The Huffington Post published a prediction that in 2022 alone, the Supreme Court's decision will directly cause the deaths of hundreds of people as their bodies are used by the state against their will. Abortion is significantly safer than pregnancy, period. That is what they said in the Huffington Post. On Twitter, the actor Holly Berry declared that the treatment for an ectopic pregnancy is an abortion. The treatment for a septic uterus is abortion. The treatment for miscarriage that your body won't release is abortion. You can't get those abortions. You die. You die. Holly Berry is completely wrong there. Did you know that pre-1973, no one considered ectopic pregnancy to be, to be even in the realm of what we would consider abortion today? When we talk about abortion today and when we talked about it in 1973, it was for elective reasons. An ectopic pregnancy, the chance of viability for that baby is zero. So the procedure that you're performing is to save the life of the mother because the baby isn't where it needs to be. So it's, the, it's a life-saving measure. If someone has a spontaneous abortion or a miscarriage and you need to go in, go in and, and do something about that after the fact, no one has ever considered that to be in the same realm as an intellective abortion. The laws on the books that across this country are targeted at elective abortions, not ectopic pregnancies, not miscarriages, not, not issues with the uterus. And anyone that would say otherwise is just either misinformed or they are outright lying to you. 
Some of these claims may be disputable or misleading, but they're all rooted in a concern for maternal mortality. The Dobbs decision has sparked a long overdue reckoning with the abysmal state of maternal health in the United States. It's no secret that we have the highest maternal mortality rate among developed nations. According to the Pew Trust, pregnancy-related deaths among American women have risen markedly over the past 30 years, despite an overall downward trend worldwide. Between 2000 and 2017, UNICEF reported that the United States averaged roughly 19 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. During the same time period, Chile, Ireland, and Poland, all countries where elective abortion was illegal at the time, averaged respectively 13, 6, and 2 deaths per 100,000. Canada, where there are fewer restrictions on abortion than the United States, averaged 10 deaths per 100,000, while the UK averaged 8 and Australia 6. More recent data suggests that the high maternal mortality rate in the U.S. has not declined. According to the CDC's Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System, the maternal mortality rate rose 140% between 87 and 2018, from 7.2 to 17.3. The agency's National Vital Statistics System reports that in 2020, the maternal mortality in the United States climbed to 23.8 deaths per 100,000. Meanwhile, the rate in other industrialized countries has either remained stable or declined. Given this context, it is understandable that many people have expressed concern about how Dobbs could affect women's health. Will a shift in medical practice endanger pregnant mothers and further widen the, un, uh, the maternal mortality gap between the U.S. and other developed nations? Will outcomes for white women and women of color continue to diverge? In recent weeks, stories about delayed care of pregnant women facing medical emergencies and a lack of access to life-saving intervention have been all over the press. And there is increasing anxiety about what may now happen to women who experience miscarriages, ectopic pregnancies, or other serious medical complications. Many insist these undeniably agonizing cases are direct evidence that unrestricted access to elective abortions is essential for safeguarding women's health. But this poses a false dichotomy. Either maintain one of the most permissive abortion regimes in the world or condemn mothers to die from medical complications of pregnancy. This argument distracts from what is otherwise a critical conversation about maternal health and from legitimate concerns about how new abortion restrictions are being implemented and how they are being interpreted or misinterpreted by doctors, hospitals, and pharmacies in an already overwhelmed healthcare system. Such conversations must start with important distinctions in terminology. Some diversity of opinion exists among Catholic bioethics and, and medical professionals about how to talk about abortions and other medical interventions that are performed to treat conditions like septic uterus, ruptured membranes, and ectopic pregnancies. In a clinical context, the term, quote, abortion refers to any pregnancy loss that occurs before 20 weeks. Within this broad category, we, we can identify three distinct types of pregnancy loss. The first is a spontaneous abortion or the death of a fetus in utero before 20 weeks gestation, more commonly called a miscarriage. The second is what bioethicists have long referred to as an indirect abortion, any procedure that ends a pregnancy but does not have its aim at the death of the unborn child. This includes all procedures included to preserve the life of the mother, procedures that ought to have been performed in nearly all the cases that have recently made headlines. Finally, there's elective abortion, which directly intends to the death of a living fetus or embryo. Most of the estimated 50 to 66 million abortions that have been performed in the U.S. since 1973 have been elective abortions. And it is the third type of abortion that new laws are intended to restrict. 
On the one hand, many abortion rights activists seek to expand public funding of elective abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, claiming that anything less puts women's life in jeopardy. Never mind that every law currently in effect, including Texas's heartbeat law, makes it clear that physicians are not only allowed, but expected to intervene to save the life of the mother, even if this intervention requires the termination of her pregnancy by means of an indirect abortion. On the other hand, a vocal minority of abortion abolitionists, uh, such as Scott Herndon, a Republican candidate for the Idaho Senate, support the elimination of all exceptions to abortion bans, even those that would save the life of mother, as well as the criminal prosecution of women who procure abortions. These abortion abolitionists refuse to make any distinction between direct elective abortion and indirect abortion, and their legislative proposals have provoked serious concern that after Dobbs, we are on our way to total bans of medical interventions necessary to save the lives of pregnant women. But of course, those, those laws will not pass. So that brings us back to the relationship between elective abortion and maternal health. Pro-choice activists insist that new restrictions on elective abortion will inevitably result in the deaths of thousands of women. Last month, a piece in the New Yorker cited a study claiming that a hypothetical total abortion ban would lead to a 21% rise in pregnancy-related deaths. In an L.A. Times op-ed published shortly after the draft leak, three social scientists argued that losing abortion rights puts women's lives at stake. During a panel discussion hosted by the New York Times, uh, an OBGYN from Mount Sinai Hospital claimed maternal mortality without the availability of abortion will absolutely go up. We've seen it since the beginning of time and it will continue. Without providing any evidence to back up this claim, she went further. Assertions like these are so common and so confidently presented that the average layperson does not dare question them. That's what I'm saying. When these things are said, whether they're on the campaign trail or a panel with OBs or, or whatever, they say them as if they're fact, and no one presses them. Our, our journalists certainly aren't going to. Our media is not going to press them. So if, if, if our political candidates and if pro-lifers aren't pressing the issue, then who's going to speak on our behalf? So the question is, is abortion really safer than pregnancy? This turns out to be a hard question to answer because of two factors. The difficulty of measuring pregnancy mortality and the difficulty of collecting accurate abortion-related data. The first difficulty is, is fairly straightforward. It's hard to accurately assess the, the rate of maternal death without a uniform definition of maternal death. Different organizations and reporting bodies use different definitions depending on different criteria and covering different postnatal periods. Look, we've seen this even with COVID. Some states report different than other states. Some states are giving you a daily tally. Some states are giving you a, a, a weekly tally. Some are giving you a monthly tally. So it's hard to then comp compile that data into something that's useful because there's not a uniform system. There are other statistical challenges. Pregnancy mortality is measured per live birth, not per pregnancy. This means that the pregnancies of women who have early miscarriages usually go uncounted. The Cleveland Clinic estimates that a third to half of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. Eighty percent of these pregnancies happen early in pregnancy, many before a woman even knows she's pregnant. All of these pregnancies are excluded from the data because they do not result in live births. They show up in the statistics only if a woman dies. This creates serious problems for accurately assessing the actual risk of pregnancy. So, so we don't know. And, and then we, we can go even further. The second challenge of collecting accurate abortion-related data is significantly more complex. 
It's really a set of challenges rather than just one. The United States lacks, listen to this, the United States lacks universal mandatory reporting for abortion and also for medical complications and deaths related to abortion. Because of this, determining the relative safety of abortion is nearly impossible. CDC data is based on voluntary state reporting. And it's not always consistent with that of our reporting institutions. For example, the Guttmacher Institute often reports significantly higher numbers of abortion than the CDC, even though their data is also based on voluntary reporting. Listen to this, and then we'll, we'll move on. According to Guttmacher, several key states, including California, Maryland, and New Hampshire, do not report abortion data at all. At all. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we finish up today, I do want to go back to this, this piece really quick and just, just highlight a couple more, more points. So it's worth noting that California, Maryland, and New Jersey are among the states with the highest annual abortion rates, yet their data is not reflected in CDC reporting. You see, when we talk about numbers, we talk about data. And even California and some of these other folks, these states, will, will point at data when their state's not even giving the data to the CDC. And then if the standards for reporting abortion itself are uneven, the standards for reporting the health risk of abortion are downright abysmal. Only 27 states and the District of Columbia require the reporting of complications from abortion. And even the states that require reporting lack enforceable penalties for abortion providers who fail to comply. This means that we do not have a reliable measure of abortion-related complications. And without that, there can be no useful comparison between the risk of abortion and those of pregnancy. This challenge is com compounded by the fact that abortion-related complications and deaths are often reported as pregnancy-related complications or deaths. Listen to, this, listen to this example. In 2017, an otherwise healthy 23-year-old black woman named Keisha Atkins died of pul pulmonary uh, thrombolism, a blood clot in the lungs. During a late-term abortion, she was 24 weeks pregnant at the time. 92% of abortions take place before the 13th week of gestation. According to the medical examiner, Ms. Atkins had begun the abortion process and was at a clinic preparing for the final stage. While there, she began to experience symptoms of distress, cramping, but also shortness of breath and low blood oxygen levels. She, transferred, she was transferred to a hospital where she continued to have cramping, an elevated heart rate and low blood oxygen levels. Further testing revealed fluid in her lungs and reduced heart function. The medical examiner goes on to explain, due to rapid decomposition in her clinical status and the concern for a significant infection, she was taken emergently to the operating room to complete the abortion procedure. During the operation, she sustained a cardiac arrest. Extensive resuscitation efforts were ultimately unsuccessful. The medical examiner notes that Ms. Atkins had a septic uterus due to the abortion procedure itself, and the autopsy revealed a well-developed, well-nourished young woman with extensive medical intervention. Her family went on to sue the abortion clinic and hospital, which settled for $1.26 million in May of 2022. Still, listen to this. Mrs. Atkins' death certificate reports her cause of death as pulmonary thrombolism due to pregnancy. Said nothing about the abortion. The CDC would not say whether her case made it into the national statistic data because all states do not report to the CDC. 
While New Mexico, Miss Atkins' home state, does report abortion data to the CDC, it does not report complications. Thus, even though she died during an abortion procedure, her death would be categorized as a pregnancy-related mortality, not an abortion-related mortality. Now, now, why are they doing that? They're doing that because they want the data to be vague. They'd much rather go out and say pregnancy is dangerous than, than, than citing the story of this family. You know, there's a reason why the clinic gave that family $1.26 million. Because they'd much rather pay that out and the story go away than anyone think that abortion could be dangerous. You see, this is why we talk about these things. This is why when, when folks bring into your conversation or your debate or in a town hall or, or in your face or on social media, hey, what about maternal safety? What about this? What about that? What about rape, incest? What about this? What about that? We need to be prepared to, to answer and to also have them defend their position. We can't start throwing out statistics if the data that we're looking at is unclear and muddied because the largest state in the union when it comes to abortion isn't even reporting their numbers. And when many of these states aren't reporting any of the complications that may come or arise because of abortion procedures. You see, now is not the time for us to be back on our heels playing defense. Now's the time in a post-row era that we move forward on the balls of our feet, ready to go, unapologetically. This is where I stand. And whether I stand here alone by myself because no one else is willing to do it, or if I stand with millions for life, then, then I'm prepared to do it because the right thing is the right thing. Now let's get after it. It's worth it, folks. We'll talk to you next time.